Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is spending ten minutes or so with readers and book lovers from around the world, asking them what they're reading, and what they recommend to anyone with a bit of time on their hands. Today I'm spending ten minutes or so with the British Science Fiction Award winning and Campbell, Clark, Kitchy and Locus Award nominated author of The Fractured Europe Sequence, Dave Hutchinson, who joins me from somewhere in England. Hello, Dave. <laughs> Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, somewhere in England, London. <laughs> Uh, isn't that actually triangle isn't that actually all of england i mean sort of conceptually from afar sort of culture it seems like you know england is is sort of london and some other stuff possibly with some quaint murders in farms or something (laughs) yeah it's london in midsummer basically (laughs) that's basically uh yes yeah absolutely it's it's just london as far as the eye can see until Mm. you get to scotland (laughs) Which, which from near as I can tell, some Londoners would like to flee for as soon as possible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, me, me among them. So how are you? How is the great and terrible pause treating you? Uh, I'm struggling a little bit, but I'm really not. It hasn't changed my day-to-day life very much at all. I'm, I'm sitting in my room writing, which I would be. I don't go out much, which I wouldn't have done. Um, I read a lot. I watch the news and despair. <laughs> it's basically basically normal life for me. I feel quite guilty because a lot of uh, a lot of people have had their lives kind of knocked entirely off the off the balance. Yeah, and this is just you know another day for me. Yeah, well, I mean, part I'm, I'm very I'm very privileged actually. You know, I, I've got a bit of a bit of cash to mm-hmm. get me through and which a lot of people don't have uh we got no kids so there's not a problem there um yeah i do, I do feel a bit guilty that i'm not suffering more <laughs> well actually i was going to say i mean very seriously that actually is in a sense one of the problems isn't it that the way you feel about the world apart from the fact that you are an, a voluntary shut-in who's being involuntary shut-in which kind of affects how you think about the world there's also this thing where if you are fortunate, you become very, very aware, uncomfortably aware of how much luckier than many other people you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really aware of, you know, before this happened, I was just a bloke sitting in his bedroom typing. And now I'm a bloke sitting in his bedroom typing. And, you know, the world's just going by, which is one thing, I suppose. But, I mean... Do you feel like, in a sense, and it's something I've felt, do you feel we are actually more aware of and part of the world around us than we were, at least conceptually, six months ago? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think we're... I would like to, th- I would like to hope so, anyway. Yeah. Um, because we can't, we can't sort of... Or until recently, we, we couldn't actually take part in it. We couldn't interact with it. Yeah, we we still can't fly anywhere. No, but um, but but the problems we're facing are essentially the same ones. I mean, maybe a different species of them, but you know, there's COVID nineteen, there's climate change, there's insane politics. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's just business as usual, really, isn't it, Jonathan? Well, I want to say I don't want to say business as usual. No, what I'd like to think is that what it is, though, is that for the first time, somebody in Dhaka, someone in Sao Paulo, someone in London, someone in Perth and West Australia, 
are facing a similar school of problems as well as their own unique ones. And that brings us together. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think if, when you when you lock down, your world world kind of shrinks a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just four walls, and um, there, there is a tendency, I think, to get insular. Yeah, I think. Do you think it's impacting your work and what you're writing and what you choose to write? Well, I. I should have been writing the the third aftermath book, the the one you know that goes shelter, haven. It was haven, wasn't it? I'm, I'm doing the third one, and I thought, well, this is an ideal time to to make a start on this. And I sat and just looked at the first page for about three weeks, and did absolutely nothing. I just couldn't concentrate on writing a post catastrophe novel when there was a catastrophe going on. So I started, instead I started working on a kind of spin-off from the Europe books, which is comfort writing, really. You know, I'm, I'm sort of disappearing back into the, into that world. Is it because it's familiar? Because, I mean, for all of its strengths, I wouldn't have described the fractured Europe books as comfortable. Well, you see, this is the problem. I've always thought that the Europe in the Europe books was, would be quite a fun place to live. <laughs> everybody, everybody, everybody tells me it's a dystopia, and I'm happy to, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to take that. But I don't. I've never really agree, agreed with that. I would love it. It's, it's full. Of, it's full of promise and you know vitality, and it's always changing. Um, although in this book, there's a, there's a lot of sort of the downside of that. There's sure. A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of people die again. I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I guess it ties into what I was saying a moment ago. How how would you, or would you, would you reimagine fractured Europe based on the last six months? Do you think it would be a no. different thing if you were starting it now? Oh yeah, yeah, it would be absolutely different. Um, it would be a lot crazier. It would be utterly insane because of the, I. I said this at the beginning of the uh, the lockdown that all the all the imaginings of um, catastrophe novels got everything wrong. You know, John John Wyndham never talks about people stockpiling toilet paper. You know, I think I think we've we've kind of imagined uh, we imagine a, a, a dystopia or a, a catastrophe as Brad Pitt running down a street wearing a hazard suit you know, fighting zombies, when really it's people sitting at home swapping bread recipes. <coughs> and we never we never kind of imagined the mundane part of it. Um, which I which I think is, is interesting. It's interesting as a science fiction writer just to, to live through stuff like this rather than just make it up. Do you think that you... Well, it's too early to say how science fiction will respond to the toilet paper apocalypse, but... Do you think it's going to have to change how it looks at it at, at, at this space? Given this is, that, I mean, let's face it, apocalypse is the bread and butter of science fiction. Um, asking what's next is the, is the bread and butter of science fiction. Do you think we'll be doing that differently? I've no idea. I suspect there are going to be a lot of really bad pandemic novels in the next couple of years, and I may even <clears throat> I may even write one of them. But I mean, uh, what, what's the attraction uh, of? Uh, a- yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. 
no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, what's the attraction of a, pand- a pandemic story right now? I mean, as a reader, that's not something that would immediately beguile me, I have to say. This is... This is a good point, and this this might go back to something we were talking about earlier about the uh, the Spanish flu not appearing mm-hmm. in fiction very much. Maybe people won't won't want to write about it. Not for not for a while, anyway. I did hear a rumor at the beginning uh, at the beginning of all this that certain literary novelists were were working on pandemic novels. Yeah. How true that how true that is, I don't know. I suspect they're all going to be really bad. <laughs> Well, I mean, a pe- a pe- we will all we will all read them. We will all read them and be sort of disdainful about them. I mean, surely a pandemic novel before you, before you have to, you've been through a pandemic is an interesting intellectual exercise rather than a traumatic recollection you're extrapolating from. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. Yeah, and I mean, as you say, I mean, for all of the cozy catastrophe and everything, nobody really thought would have thought of it being the way it is. I don't think. Um, let me ask you: Do you think science fiction, when you when you write it, when you when you read it and think about it, that it approaches this space very well? I think it approaches it as well as it can. Mm. Um, it, it approaches it from a lot of different directions. You know, you can approach it from the sort of flat out visceral horror of it or you can approach it from the the station 11 side which is a much more sort of uh it, i hate to use the word but it's a more highbrow view of it so it's a more artistic view of it um i don't i don't i don't think i don't think there's this this one right or wrong way to to approach something like this really the the thing is that <clears throat> I think the cozy catastrophes that we think of, the Wyndham, the John Christophers, and stuff like that, were written by people who remembered the war and the, the sort of the privations and the, the horrors of that. And we've had a big period where there was none, we didn't have the memory of that, or very few of us anyway. Now we've got something to remember, we've got something as an index to refer to. And it may, it may creep in, <clears throat> it may creep in as details, but I don't think it's going to change things very much. Yeah. Do, do you think that the experience of the pandemic may well affect how we think and talk about the, the other great issue of science fiction of the moment, climate change? I think it's too, that's just way too soon yeah. to, to tell. I think we'll, we'll get this over with and see if it leads to a, a greater consciousness of of climate change. It seems it, discussion of climate change seems to be very, very sort of low down on people's priorities at the moment that I've I've seen in the media anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> well, certainly, well, I think we'll, that, we'll, we'll see. I think there's that focus on 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 the disaster of the moment, uh, and, and this is the immediate urgent one, and we are better. We seem as as a as a race, almost be- better able to focus on an immediate hazard rather than a, a a slightly distant one. Even though after the bushfires here back in January, it doesn't seem that far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we do keep putting stuff like that off. You know, it's, it's a kind of distant thing, and it's stuff that our grandchildren will, may have to deal with, which is you know, Sodom will be dead kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. 
Well, which is which is I think which has been which has been sort of people have been doing that for centuries. You know, yep, true. You know, it is how we we deal with know, these things. We're we're not well configured we, we for put, the long we put, term. We put them off. Yeah, I think I think there may be a sort of an unconscious recognition that it's it's just too big a, a thing to to cope with. So we'll let another generation sort it out. Yeah. Well, even if they're even if they're wearing skins and hunting with spears, you know. Uh, back to shelter. Um, well, look, let me ask you, if you're shut in, you're, you're uh, working on a side call, I guess, to Europe and everything else, have you been reading? And if you have, have. if you have, is the stuff any good? I read um, Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy um, for, for various reasons, which I can't tell you about, but... Um, and I was utterly blown away by it. Utterly blown away. Um, one of the most wonderful pieces of fiction and writing uh, I've ever read. And I just, I blew through them in, I think, about three weeks. Uh, they're big books, but they're very, very easy to read. Once, once you get into the sort of the, you tune into the, the style of them. Extraordinary books, really. I'm, I'm in awe of them. What was the most compelling thing? Is it the fact that it is this intense tale of this man's life and his experience? Is it the point of view that Mantel brings to it? I, it's all of that, but it's, it's the writing. She's such a good writer. I have, I have, I, I mean, I'd heard of her. I'd never read her before, but I'd, I'd heard yeah. of her, obviously. Um, I was just, my God, has this been going on all this time and I haven't read it? <laughs> Why am I not reading everything she's written? She's such a brilliant writer. I'm, I'm utterly knocked out. And it's, it, they are great books. Yeah. She she kind of inhabits and brings brings sort of Tudor England alive, um, in a way that I've I've not experienced before. These are real real people with real and 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 Cromwell is such a monster. Yeah, but she makes it. She kind of inhabits this monster, and you kind of. I wouldn't say you understand him, but you, you're kind of standing on his shoulder all the time. It's, it's a brilliant achievement. It really is. Well, having spent three weeks consuming the life of Thomas Cromwell through the eyes of Hilary Mantel, uh, have you read anything else? I've been working through uh, Len Dayton's Bernard Sampson novels because I hadn't read them for a long time. Um, I'm a huge Dayton fan. I, I have been for years, and it may, it may be obvious from the stuff I write. Mm. Um, and this is a tril- This is three trilogies: um, Game Set and Match, Hook, Line and Sinker, and Faith, Hope and Charity. Yeah. And I'm kind of. A bit meh about them, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like, I, I really liked the first trilogy when I first read them when they came out back mm. in the, I don't know, in the eighties or the nineties. No, it'll be the eighties because it was before the war came, came down. Um, and I like the first trilogy a lot. Um, and not so much the others, but I'm reading it because I just want to reread them and, you know, with, with a, an older eye 
Then I, I don't think they're quite as good as his early books for some for some reason. But they, he's still the governor, as far as I'm concerned. He's still one, of, you know, the, one of the two two or three great spy novelists of our time. Do you, do you find comfort in rereading at a time like this? Yeah. I mean, these, these these books I haven't read since, like I say, since the eighties. So certainly the later ones, I've the details have, have completely gone. Um, I have re I reread The Martian. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. I like The Martian a lot. I, I did. I wasn't expecting to. I I heard things about it and thought, yeah. no, this this sounds not, not not my thing. But I really enjoyed it, and the, I enjoyed the film as well. I think it's a, it's a terrific adaptation, mm. a really good adaptation. So yeah, I reread that. I reread that just for fun, you know. And it's uh, it is it is kind of comforting. You take your brain out of gear for a, a little bit, yeah, and just sort of you know ride along with the book. Do you find your do you usually read fiction while you're writing, or, or are you more likely to be reading uh, non-fiction? No, I'm reading non-fiction. I'm reading fiction and non-fiction the whole time. Yeah. I make no. I mean, it's mostly fiction at the moment, but yeah, no, it's uh, I, don't, I don't make any sort of distinction really. I'm lucky to be writing at all. So <laughs> you know. Well, well, I, 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 I think the, the work stands uh, stands on its own two feet. But let me ask you this: Then you've been at home, you've been reading, you're writing, you're working on this side called to um, the fractured Europe books. Do you have anything out in the world? Anything new? Anything recent that uh, that, that readers might be able to hunt down and, and have a look at? Well, the most recent book is uh, the Return of the Incredible Exploding Man, which was. February last year, which seems like it was, it seems like it's sort of been published in the 18th century now. Um, that's about it. There, there is a, a novella coming or a novelette. I can't, I can't remember which, which was due to come out this year and I'm not sure if it will, which is a kind of a, a bridge between the Europe books and this thing that I'm working on now. And I, I don't know when that's going to come out. And where is that coming um, from? Is it coming from Newcon? That's coming from Newcon. The, uh, Ian Waits is doing a, a collection of London-centric science fiction. Um, but uh, these things are all up in the air at the moment. Of course. I mean, it's, it, it's written. He's paid me for it. It's, it's on the, but it's it's on the box and ready out, yeah. to go. Yeah. So I don't know when. It might come out next year. It, it may come out after this book I'm writing now. I don't know. <laughs> or on out. Friday, right? Um. You can't. You know, we we, we can't we can't predict that. But that's 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 about it, really. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. What's uh, just so, so readers sorry. have an idea of what to look what they're looking for? What is the elevator pitch for the Return of the Incredible Exploding Man? He says, having read it. Oh my God! Elevator pitch. Uh, it's, a, it's about a journalist uh, <clears throat> writing about a super collider mm-hmm. in northern in northern Iowa, and something goes very very wrong, and he finds himself trans. Oh, spoilers! He finds himself <laughs> he finds he finds himself transformed and battling a, a super a super enemy. 
stuff like that. I don't know. I, I'm very bad at elevator pitches. You know, well, I, I have I, to I say, I mean, say, fair enough. I mean, I'm trying, I, I don't know. I'm, that... I'm trying to think. It's it's it's, it's kind it's kind of um, it's kind of um, I don't know. It's X Men meets something, but I can't think what. <laughs> Well, it, 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 okay. When I read it, what I thought was it's an unexpected superhero novel. What I thought was there is yeah. this really deeply compelling, I have to tell you, story of this English journalist, I, I believe, who ends up in this, you know, brought in by this uber wealthy man who's got, got, who's, who's taken over this town and turned it into his own pet science project, basically. And he's there quite, quite skeptically. Uh, reporting on it all and he gets sucked into it all and the community of it and the drama of it and his neighbor and all this kind of stuff and then events happen and everything changes and i mean i think it's a terrific book um it started out as a short story the short story is basically the back end of the book mm-hmm. um and i just got i got more interested in the in the town and the people than actually in the the back end of the book it was a really, it was a really, it was a really tough one to write. I, I sort of started it. Oh, I don't know, three or four times before I actually got into it. It was, it was, it was tougher than a lot of the stuff I've written. Um, so basically, the it's unexpected because all the interesting stuff is kind of tacked on at the end. All the, all the sort of bangy stuff is tacked on at the end. But I was more interested in the effects of the um, the presence of this billionaire of buying up the town, um, and I kind of got a bit carried away with it. <laughs> well, I, actually, let me um, ask you this because this and then I, got, I, I, got, yeah. I, I got to the end and thought, "Oh God, I'm going to have to put some explosions in to make people, <laughs> you know, make it worthwhile." See, I okay. If were I had had I been your editor, I would completely disagree with you. Right? I think the three quarters of the book before the explodey ending completely earns its existence in the world without any exploding exploding ending. You know, I actually was almost surprised by where, I mean, I realized that the title actually kind of gives you a clue, but I was almost surprised with where it went because of its interest in what is a really compelling subject right now, which is this role of these mega wealthy people in our Mm, worlds. And the, character you know the viewpoint character for the story is utterly compelling so you know i'm interested to hear that you found it difficult to bring these stories together to make them make them work i always kind of knew where it was going because i had the well it's unusual for me to have an ending yeah for a book but i always knew the direction of what was going to happen but it was kind of it was kind of sanding it down so there wasn't a sudden, you know, drop off into into madness. Um, I don't I don't think I quite got that right, but it was I I couldn't. The biggest difficulty I had to start with was uh, which tense to tell it in, because the short sto- the short stories in the the um, is from Alex's point of view. And I tried to I tried to write the book like that, and it just didn't work. It worked fine as a short story, but as a longer piece, it didn't. And so I was I was messing around for months trying to get it to. I was trying to get interested in it. I think I was trying to get my own interest up, 
And one of the characters uh changed there was there was a there was a thing about Alex being married and his wife having an affair with the the bad guy. And I ploughed on with that and that just that was just a disaster. It wouldn't work at all. So I took her out and made him single and I put her back in as another character. As 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 a scientist Wendy and took out all the affair stuff and um it seemed to work better but it really was very hard it was I handed it in two months late I think which is dreadfully unprofessional and I, I, t- I try not to do that which I'm um, sure they they appreciate but well <laughs> it's just unprofessional but I mean I it really was hard to kind of get it actually get get it push started you know whereas you know something like dawn i mean dawn was tough to write but it was a lot easier than this yeah and yeah, i because i i kind of i just sort of romped through it yeah and do you think i mean now that you know exploding man safely out in the world and readers can find it and there'll be a link in the show notes to go go find it do you think that you will get the New Europe book done in time for us to see it next year, or do you think it'll be out beyond then? I'm aiming to finish it by the end of August. I mean, I've, I've got about 60,000 words of it done. So, but it's, it's kind of 60,000 words that are all lying around in bits and pieces. It's all got to be bolted together. Yeah. Which is how I, t- which is how I tend to do things. Um, so I, again, it, it depends on publishing schedules. Yeah, because I, I want to start. I want to start the third, the third aftermath book. Finally, finally, I keep getting. I keep getting sidetracked. I keep getting sidetracked. I've got to write this because I. You've I got to, to. You've got to get the toilet paper in. Yes, <laughs> but for the moment, though, let Dave Hutchinson. Let me thank you very much for taking time to talk to me t- today. I genuinely appreciate it's a pleasure, it. Pleasure, Jonathan. Absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thank you.